So good morning, everybody. So let's generate our motivation. So one of the qualities, or a few of the qualities of a precious human life are being born at a time when the Buddha has manifest on the world and turn the wheel of dharma, which means giving the teachings in a time and place where the teachings do not yet exist. Not only did the Buddha give the teachings, but there's a lineage of practitioners who have practiced them from that time down to our present age, who can validate the teachings because they've experienced them. And some even have attained bodhisattvahood or Buddhahood. In addition, the scriptures still exist, so we can always turn to the scriptures. And the lineage of monastics, the Sangha, that still exists too. So even though the Sangha, the monastics may not all be realized, but they're trying. And so having their example around us is something that is important because it gives us some idea of how we can behave, how we can be be in the world, too. So it's important to be aware of these kinds of external conditions and then make use of them, not take them for granted, but use them to inspire us and to realize how rare and precious our life is. And so to make it meaningful, especially by generating bodhicitta. So we may hear about this, you know, don't take it for granted, but we may not really spend time thinking about what it would be like to live in a historical time period where the Buddha had not taught, where there was no Dharma whatsoever. Yeah, Could you lead yourself on the path? Would you know what to practice and abandon without the Buddhist teachings or without somebody to teach you. If I look at my life before I met the Dharma, there was no way I could come up with 
you know, even understanding what good ethical conduct was, really. And so to appreciate that that, uh, kind of situation and to realize that there's many people alive right now who don't have a good situation to practice in, yeah, during the time of the Cultural Revolution in China, after the Chinese Communist uh, occupation of Tibet, I mean, you got thrown in prison just for, you know, moving your lips because you're silently saying the ma- a mantra. Yeah, there's no way to show any external practice whatsoever, uh, let alone have a situation like this where you have teachings. And yet, you know, some people persevered in very difficult situations. When I was in China in the mid-90s, I met uh, a few nuns, and they told me, you know, because they had a temple before the Cultural Revolution, and their temple was occupied and turned into a factory of some sort. And, of course, they were forced to you know, they couldn't wear their robes anymore. They had to put on regular clothes. And they had to wear these placards, you know, front and back, criticizing religion and dunces haps and caps and walk through the street. I don't know if you were aware of this, but people who were well-educated religious people and so on during the Cultural Revolution, this is what they had to do, you know and then go to re-education programs. It was really rather brutal. And uh, while the situation is somewhat better in China now, still the, you know, some months ago, the government shut down um, half of a very large monastery and made people disrobe. So it's not a hunky-dory situation there. Okay. And uh, we even have people listening to this class who live in countries where they could probably get in trouble, you know, for listening to something Buddhist or whatever. So those people are very brave, very courageous, really true to their hearts and wanting to find meaning in their lives. So we should admire them and not... uh, Take our situation just like, well, of course, everybody has this opportunity because not everybody does. Okay, then, um, before we start, we're starting on Chapter 5 today. I wanted to clear up something um, that uh, I received a a note from someone. Uh, So, you know, Shantideva when he was talking about giving up bodhicitta, uh, he spoke about, you know, the very drastic results of doing that, like being born in the hell realm. Okay. So someone um, wrote and, yeah, and said, uh, she said something like, if we give up bodhicitta halfway, we will go to hell. That's the karmic result, something like that. At first, I got rather afraid, afraid of going to hell, of course. And I kind of wondered, should I go on the path of compassion and bodhicitta in the first place if I could go to hell simply by giving it up? 
Okay. So this is, uh, I had this experience not with compassion and bodhicitta, but with what, uh, people were translating as guru devotion. And if you have the slightest little mess up with that, you're going to even worse hell than if you, you know, uh, give up your bodhicitta. And I, I even asked one of my teachers, should I take on you know, should I attend more teachings by other teachers? Because I'm afraid if I take on more teachers and then I don't, you know, fulfill all this stuff properly, that I'm going to be born in the hell realm. And I don't want that because I want to keep practicing. Yeah. So, so what we see here is a few things. Okay. One is the, okay, what's the reason for the, uh, the Buddha, uh, saying things like that. First of all, it's not to make us so scared that we don't do anything. So the way I responded and the way this person responded, that's not what the Buddha is trying to get across. But seeing how easily people, especially people in the West, re- you know, who have grown up in that way, uh, find it easy to respond to this thing by just saying, you know, if it's that delicate, I don't want to even try because my mind's uncontrolled and I'm going to mess up and go to hell and I don't want to do that. So it shows us, one, that we have to be very careful about how we teach that and how we explain it to make sure people understand it properly because the Buddha's aim is not to get us into that state of fear and paralysis and paranoia, because that's totally useless. We can't practice when our mind is like that. Okay. So we've misunderstood something along the way. Yeah. Part of the misunderstanding, I think, is due to the word fear. Okay. Cause we're, it's said, we get the feeling that we should fear this. Now, when we think of fear, what do you think of? Yeah, you think of like, uh, and a, a state of tension, stress, confusion. You know, I don't want to go there. So why would in the, in the world would the Buddha be trying to make us feel that? So the word fear, I think, it's much better cross that word out and use awareness of danger. Okay? So like I I was explaining before, when you're learning to drive and you're merging on the highway, you don't want to be terrified and shaking at the wheel so much that you're going like this and the car's going like that. And, you know, that's that's not going to help you learn to drive properly. But you want to have an awareness of danger because then that just makes you more attentive to what you're doing, more careful with what you're doing. But you don't go into that panic, stressful state. That's what the Buddha is trying to get us into, okay? It's an awareness of danger, not a panic state. You have to remember, too, that the teachings... um And the Tibetans are, you know, they do, 
you know, the, the, the fear thing, they, you know, emphasize it in the teachings. I mean, Pabonka Rinpoche's thing, I mean, he's really good at that. He wrote this one text about how you should feel at the end of doing the Lamra meditations. He went all the way up to refuge, and with the exception of precious human rebirth, which should make you feel happy, all the rest you were supposed to feel terrified of messing up with. And I read his text, and I thought, uh, you can't teach this in the West. You know? It's not going to work. But you have to remember that they were often teaching to people who were not educated, who didn't have a lot of conceptual namtok in their mind, who could use a little bit of awareness of danger so that they would be more attentive to what they were doing. Okay, so I think it was taught for, you know, in that context. Also, I asked one Tibetan Lama about this because I was saying, you know, you teach things this way and people get terrified. They take you 100% literally and get terrified, okay? And he said, oh, the Tibetans don't do that. <laughs> yeah, when you tell the Tibetans, if, if, if a Tibetan is over here on this extreme, you know, you've been herding goats and whatever, whatever you've been doing, and you're kind of like, just, you know, you're relaxed and, and you're pretty okay. And you're too relaxed, yeah, because you, you aren't aware of what's going on around you and if there's danger, how to prevent it. So he was, if a Tibetan's over here and you want to get them here in the middle, you teach them this on the other extreme. And then that gets them to the middle, which is where you want them. And I was saying, well, with a Westerner, if they're on this extreme, you know, and, uh, and the, and you teach them this, they're going to go all the way over here to this extreme and, you know, be in a mental state that is not at all helpful. Okay. So it was a very interesting dialogue with this Lama because we really saw the difference in culture and how the difference in culture influences how things are taught. Now, some Westerners go to the complete opposite and say, well, this was just all taught for, you know, people who hoard goats, <laughs> you know, and we're educated Western people with modern technology, so we don't need to hear that, you know? So the, this kind of uh, colonial atmosphere, you know, mentality, and, uh, you know, and you don't want to be there either. I mean, that's, you can't look at the teachings and say, well, this was just all for uneducated people, but it's too simple for me because I'm a smart, educated person. Look at me. I have a diploma. That piece of paper protects me from doing anything stupid. <laughs> right. Right. Look at some of the people who are running the society, who have lots of pieces of paper, who are doing very stupid things. Okay. So it's nothing to be proud of. You know, we shouldn't have that kind of attitude. But um, 
just to be aware sometimes that what the Buddha, think of, you know, what the Buddha is trying to get us to isn't that terrified state. And so I know for myself, you know, I remember doing retreat and just being, especially because mine was in relationship, especially terming it guru devotion. I mean, the Tibetan expression is Lama Tenpa. Tenpa means to rely. Okay? So it's how to rely on a spiritual mentor. That makes sense, doesn't it? When you don't know anything, you rely on people who do know something. And you check out their qualities before you make that connection. Guru devotion, on the other hand, those two words in Western culture, well, guru, you know, we go back to the 60s with the, with the gurus, you know, and the gurus, because then it was mostly Hindu gurus, you know, so the long hair and the beards and this kind of stuff. And, and then the Westerners going off and, you know, you give everything away and you go live up in the mountains and, and, uh, you know, and you devote yourself to your guru. So you're just, ro- you know, crawling in the mud all day because you're completely, my guru is everything, you know, and, and, and you think that that's what guru devotion means. In other words, it has nothing to do with listening to the teachings and following the teacher's instructions. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with just blind faith and big eyes and worship, you know. And, And then we think, okay, I'm supposed to be like that. And if I'm not like that, you know, and then there's all these things, you know, if you have one moment of anger towards your guru, oh my God, you know, I got angry for one split second and I'm going to the hell realms now for, you know, innumerable eons and I'm never going to get out. And, you know, I put too much sugar in my guru's tea and actually he wanted salt tea, you know, Tibetan tea, and I gave him sweet tea, and I totally messed up, and now I'm going to go to have the hell room of hot Tibetan tea that's going to (laughs) scorch all the way down my body for eons, you know, and and we go into these kind of things, and that's, you know, and so I remember thinking, is this the mental state that the Buddha wants me to be in? Is this a healthy, open, intelligent, sincere mental state? Does it, you know, when you read the qualities of a good disciple, does this mental state fulfill those? No, not at all. So if I got myself into that mental state, I'm thinking about something wrong. Okay. So, I shouldn't go to the extreme of, well, I can do anything I want. You know, I don't have to be polite. I don't have to be that. That's all. You know, they're threatening us, you know, because actually, you know, they did call it Lamaism for a purpose because they worship their Lamas. And so it's a hierarchical, hierarchical, patriarchal, no, um, uh, patriarchal. Uh, system, and, you know, they're just trying to get me to be a servant in it and give them lots of money. So, you know, no, that's, that's not why they're telling us that, you know. So, you know, we either go to, to this extreme of like, it doesn't mean anything, it's stupid, 
Uh, or to the other extreme of I'm terrified to lift my little finger because I may put it down in the wrong place. Yeah. And then to think, you know, okay, what kind of mental state would the Buddha want me to be in? It's not this one and it's not that one. Yeah. So what kind of mental state is a healthy mental state to look at this topic in the long rim with? And to think, well, you know, having teachers is important. There's no way I can figure out the path by myself. And when I look at the positive effect my teachers have had on me, it's like nobody else in this planet has had that kind of effect. Nobody else can perform the role of my spiritual teachers. You know, no matter how much they love me and care for me, most other people are totally worldly. They can't lead me spiritually. Yeah. So I love my teachers, you know, and I'm grateful to them. And I don't want to do anything that's going to mess up the relationship by being selfish or angry or stupid. It's like, oh, that's reasonable, isn't it? Yeah. And if I do something selfish and I get angry and go in a tirade and run down the hill and print it in the Newport Minor, how mean my teacher is, you know, and then it goes viral from the Newport Minor across the globe. <laughs> you know, then, okay, that's not so good, is it? Yeah. So I need, you know... I need to to guard my mind, which is the title of chapter five. I need to guard my mind so that my mind, you know, when my teacher does things that I don't agree with, it doesn't mean that he's wrong and I'm right, you know, so I don't need to get angry at everything. I can just say, you know, he has his way of making decisions. I have another way of making decisions. Yeah, and not all my teachers make decisions the same way. Yeah, some of my teachers, His Holiness is so punctual that he starts early. Yeah, others of my teachers, it may or may not start on the, even on the day that it's announced, you know, or it may start five hours later. Some of my teachers do everything by Mo's. Some of my teachers don't even look, don't even do mo's. Okay. Everybody has their own way of doing things. It doesn't mean that, that on those kind of things that one teacher is better or worse than another. Yeah. Some of my teachers like Tibetan tea, which is, I think is so disgusting and so unhealthy. And they say to treasure your precious human life and they're drinking that horrible stuff. And I want to go on a crusade to stop Tibetan tea and supplace it with sweet tea. Now, of course, sweet tea isn't so healthy either, but I like it, so it's okay to drink. (laughs) (laughs) But someday, if I give up sweet tea because I realize sugar isn't good, then I'm going to go on a crusade to stop everybody from drinking sweet tea. Okay. So, no, you know, that's not what is important in a relationship with the teacher. Yeah. 
or in a relationship with any human being. Yeah, if we go around and we start picking on anybody and everybody for every small thing they do that doesn't fit our notion of how they should be or how they should practice the Dharma, then we're going to spend all of our time correcting everybody but ourselves. And everybody else's karma is not what's going to send us to the hell realm or a precious human life. It's our own karma. But we're going to ignore our own karma because we're so busy minding everybody else's behavior. Okay? So then you realize, okay, you know, yeah, what the attitude I have of really respecting and loving my teachers, that's what you want to have. And not mess up and, and create animosity and drama in that relationship. Okay. But that's what the Buddha is trying to get me. Yeah. So not, not to this state of, you know, so I'm terrified of having teachers because I might mess up. Okay. So this is, you know, think about this if you find your mind getting into some kind of turmoil about something in the teachings that, that you're reading. You know, really ask yourself, is this a healthy state of mind? Is this, you know, a state of mind, you know, that has intelligence, is open-minded, and is sincere? So those were the three qualities, you know, that Aryadeva mentioned for a good disciple. Of course, there's more, you know, too, in addition to that, but at least those three. And say, you know, if it's not getting me to that, then I'm not understanding something correctly. And I need to go back and really think about it. Okay, so that's a little bit about this whole fear thing that this person brought up. They, I also want to read you what, what they said. It's, it's, it's something to think about. Okay, so they got afraid. And they were saying, you know, I, I'm afraid because I could go to hell simply by giving up bodhicitta. Okay. But a friend of mine shared with me a very loving and hopeful perspective on this, which helped lessen my fear. And so here, they're, they're um, confusing compassion and bodhicitta. So compassion and bodhicitta are not the same thing. Okay? Compassion is a cause for bodhicitta. Yeah. To have bodhicitta, you need compassion. But if you have compassion, that's not enough to have bodhicitta. But anyway, that's, you know, my picky mind, which is my job. <laughs> okay, so this is what his friend told him. He said that after a person throws their compassion away, the easiest and fastest way to motivate them to take it back is to be in a place where they see suffering sentient beings. And in hell, that's where sentient beings are suffering the most. So hopefully we gain the realization that, oh my goodness, there really are a lot of suffering sentient beings that need my help. And that motivates us to take up bodhicitta once again. Okay. Kind of sweet, isn't it? It happens on a less dramatic level in our human life too. People go to a Dharma talk and decide to practice compassion. But we go back to our life, and sometimes the corporate world makes us give up our compassion. 
why should we be compassionate towards that guy who did this and this and this and this? Okay. But if someone brings us on a tour to the hospital to an animal shelter, it may soften our heart once more and we start behaving compassionately again. True. My friend also said something which gives some relief, but he cannot prove. He said that similar to the visit to the hospital, just because we visit the hospital does not mean we end up suffering to the same degree as the people who go there due to illness. So similarly for hell, we may end up going there. But if we had been practicing bodhicitta for some time, we may be born with certain powers of protection so that we do not suffer as much as the other beings who go there due to extreme anger and so forth. Of course, he can't prove that, but it sounds quite reasonable to me. And I decided after that, yes, I will practice compassion and bodhicitta. So they really came to the right conclusion about that. Yeah. By the way, um, giving up bodhicitta doesn't mean that you, you get mad at somebody. Yeah? And that doesn't mean you've given up compassion. Giving up bodhicitta is, it, it's, takes much, there's much more of a thought process behind it. It's, I have been trying to help these sentient beings. I have been doing so much to help them. And then, they completely dismiss me. They go against what I'm saying. In fact, they, they repay my kindness by harming me. So I am totally fed up with sentient beings, you know? And so if you have this kind of attitude, even towards one sentient being, you've given up bodhicitta because bodhicitta has to be towards all. But you see, it's not just, you know, they didn't put the spatula in the right place kind of anger. You know, it's like they're hopeless. You know, I'm just, there's no hope for these sentient beings. I'm fed up. Forget it. Yeah. So it's that kind of thing that, that is what is giving up bodhicitta. Okay. But still, we don't want to, uh, you know, when you hear, okay, you have to go to that extent, you still don't want to think, well, as long as I don't go that far, it can get angry up to here and angry up to here and angry up to there. No, that's not going to help you, you know, just allowing your anger to flourish. Now, with that as the uh, introduction, <laughs> we'll, we'll go to today's teaching. And I did want to read you something from Geltsubjay's commentary, too in case you don't believe me when I say something. Okay, so chapter five is about guarding alertness. So this is also, what's that? Um, this is also uh, on regarding the perfection of ethical conduct. So both the, the previous chapter on cons uh, conscientiousness and this one on guarding uh, alertness. Okay, so uh, first verse. Those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. Okay, so it's really emphasizing how important it is to look at the mind. Okay, so ethical conduct, yes, it involves uh, subduing our body and speech. 
and the Pratimoksha precepts especially, the five lay precepts, the uh, monastic precepts, are uh, designed for subduing the body and speech. However, to actually do that well, we have to subdue the mind. Okay, so verse 1 is, is saying, you know, if we want to really subdue our behavior, the mind is principle because the body and speech don't act unless the mind is acting first. Okay, unless it's a physical research, uh, reflex, like somebody hits your knee, okay? But other than that, even we're very habituated with something, there is always a choice. There, You know, we may have a very strong habit with a certain motivation, uh, but it can always be changed, okay? That's not... We say, oh, I just reflexively do that. Well, it's reflexive in the sense that it's a habit, but there's a choice in there, okay? And if we're conditioned by certain past events, then, and we're not aware of that conditioning, then it is like a knee-jerk reaction and we act in a certain way. But if we become aware of how previous conditioning has uh, clouded our mind, then when there's a triggering event, we can stop and say, oh, there's previous conditioning there. Yeah. And that conditioning is not happening now. This situation is not that situation. Okay. So don't, don't say, oh, it's ingrained in my brain and my brain is doing something beyond my control. Because if you say that, then you're saying, I'm, I have no control of this and I'm never going to change. So you're giving up on yourself. So yes, it may be hard to change, but don't give up on yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, verse 2. In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell, which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. Yeah, okay. So here, again, refer comparing it to ex an external situation. In India, sometimes you would have wild elephants, so even nowadays, sometimes you'll have a wild element, the elephant that will just totally trash a field or a village. Um, when the Tibetans were given the land in South India and they had to go out and transform wild areas into fields where they could plant crops, um, there were wild elephants around. So, you know, to this day there are and uh, if you've ever stood close to an elephant, anybody ever stood close to an elephant? Yeah? They're, they're, uh, when you think of what would, what would it be like to be near an elephant that was mad, you know, running around crazy, it'd be pretty scary. Yeah? Okay. So even elephants like that, cannot send us again to the miseries of the deepest hell. But the unleashed elephant of our mind, comparing our mind to a wild elephant, that is what 
creates the karma that sends us to that hell realm. Okay, so if we let our mind wander off to mistaken objects, okay, or we get uh, not just wander off to mistaken objects, that, that's how you start it, you know, but then starting our story about those objects. So it may be an object of desire, and you start the story, if I only had this, and how would I feel, and it would be so wonderful, and da-da-da-da-da-da. Or you start the story of, you know, they did this to me, and everybody in the whole world's against me, and da-da-da-da-da. Okay, so whichever way you go, that is an unleashed elephant of the mind that will lead us to uh, actions of body, speech, and mind that set us up for a lower rebirth. Which reminds me, there was one thing, one more thing I wanted to talk about, about fear. Okay, so let's uh, back up a, a few minutes, you know, because uh, this is an important point. Because uh, I think recently I may have talked about um you know, somebody who feels a lot of fear, it's uh, often because of having a lot of malice, either in this life or in previous lives. And if you're very, uh, you have a lot of malice towards other people, and you're wanting to harm them and plan your revenge and get even, or just you, you know, have a horrible mind that likes to torment people or rejoices in having power that, you know, oppresses people or harms them, then that kind of action in one life creates the karma to be very fearful and suspicious and uh, terrified in, in this life, okay? That does not mean that all kinds of fear depend on malice. It's just saying, if you have this cause, it's likely to bring this result. But it doesn't mean that all kinds of fear are the same. Okay? So when I said that, that's the fear of somebody physically attacking you or violating you. A fear of something outside coming to harm you because you had a mind in a previous time, thinking about how to harm somebody else, okay? Is all the fear you experience fear of external physical harm? No. Sometimes our fear is of losing what we have, or our fear is of not getting what we want. Our fear is, I have it, and it might disappear on me. Yeah, it might run off, the person may leave, the relationship may die. The, uh, this thing that I worked so hard to get, you know, the, the economy is going to go south, or somebody's going to steal it from me. You know, I'm going to be separated from an object of attachment. So that fear fearing that you're going to be separated from somebody or something you're attached to is different than the fear of when you're afraid an external person is going to physically harm you. Okay? Yeah? And you see that in your own experience? Yeah? So 
the fear especially that, you know, this, oh, I put so much into this relationship and it's not going to work out. I care so much about this person, but they're going to leave me. You know, that kind of fear about losing someone or something you're attached to. Okay? That kind of fear is totally different than the fear of an external person coming and clobbering you. Okay? So that kind of fear was about the animosity that wants to clobber somebody else. This kind of fear of losing something of value to you or not getting it is a, is due to covetousness. It's due to a mind that is craving and clinging in the past, a mind that clutches what you have and doesn't want to share it. Okay? So that, because you know, you were, were stingy or attached or in a relationship, you were very possessive and you didn't want anybody to even look at anybody else. You know, you didn't want to loan your, your ruler to anybody else because they may break it or lose it, you know? So that when you're very attached to something, you know, that creates the habit pattern to be afraid of losing what you have, okay? So that's a different kind of fear. Yeah. And I say this because somebody uh, said, you know, they're, they're quite fearful, and so they're practicing purifying malice. But the kind of fear they have is the fear that comes from excessive attachment and clinging and craving and possessiveness. That's... So it's a totally different thing. You've got to purify something different there. Okay, now let's go back. But it's interesting to look in your own mind, isn't it? And see those two kinds of fear and how they operate mm -hmm. and how your mind is thinking beforehand that makes you go into one fear or the other fear. A fear of being like physically attacked and such, though, isn't that based on attachment, though, to, to your body and yourself? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it still has an attachment yeah. basis. It's just a different yeah. um, degree of it. Yeah, you have to, you're going from, because usually there's attachment before you get anger, okay? And there's ignorance before, so it all comes back to ignorance, okay? But you know, then attachment, then the anger. So here, we, with that fear, you're really working with the anger. But, you know, if, if you also realize how attached you are to your body, and then you practice, you know, establishing mindfulness on the body and begin to see that there's nothing here to be attached to, that helps to reduce the fear of, you know, of losing this body. You may still be afraid of somebody, the pain of somebody violently, you know, attacking you or whatever. But it, it definitely helps. Okay, so now verse 3. However, if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtue will come into my hand. Okay. So here, if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound, okay, so can't run all over, 
what binds the mind, the rope of mindfulness? What does mindfulness mean? Okay, so here is where I go on my soapbox. Okay, so I am reading you now from Gautzabje, in case you don't believe what I say. Okay, so you fasten the mind with the rope of mindfulness completely to a virtuous meditation object. And that equals binding all dangers. Okay? So mindfulness means binding the mind to a virtuous meditation object. Mindfulness in a Buddhist context does not mean simply observing whatever is entering your mind. It does not mean... um, simply observing your breath, okay? Observing what is, okay, let's keep with mindfulness for a minute. So mindfulness uh, is the mental factor, okay, whether you're developing uh, serenity, concentration, or whether you're doing ethical conduct that ties the mind to a virtuous object of meditation, okay? Now, okay, there's a few things here. So it is aware of the object of meditation, and it's the mental factor that keeps the mind on that. Okay? So it's not the mental factor that is sitting there simply observing what thoughts and feelings and sensations you have. Okay? That is uh, some people uh, say is mindfulness, okay? There's some, um, you know, in the Theravada, some Theravadas that say that's mindfulness. Most of the Theravadas agree with what I'm saying here. You're tying your mind to a virtuous object in your behavior so you don't go off. So what's a virtuous object in your behavior? What are you tying your mind to? Yeah, you're tying your mind to your precepts. You're tying your mind to your values, to your principles. You're tying your mind to, um, you know, it can also help you thinking that the Buddha is on top of your head watching what you're doing or that you've become the deity and acting as a deity. Of course, you know, you're going to have a virtuous mind. So whatever technique you use, your mind is focused on, you know, a way of behaving that is going to be ethical and kind and not harmful to anybody, yourself included. Okay? So this is Buddhist mindfulness. Okay? Buddhist mindfulness also, while you're holding your mind on the object, also can examine the object. So in the context of the established, the four establishments of mindfulness on body, feelings, mind, and phenomena, you're not just paying attention to the body. There's wisdom involved 
actually observing what is the body? How does the body function? Is the body worthy of attachment? How does my mind relate to the body? How does the body cause feelings? How do feelings, uh, uh, what does it make happen in my mind? Yeah. So you're, you have this kind of wisdom investigating the whole big scene. It's not just paying attention to it. Okay? So this is Buddhist mindfulness. Okay? Secular mindfulness is something else. Okay? Don't confuse them. Okay? Secular mindfulness is, there's many different kinds nowadays. Okay? It, it started out with simply observing uh, your breath and then if other thoughts and feelings and so on come in to, to notice them for, you know, and then when nothing's coming in, go back to your breath. But it gives you more awareness of what's going on in your mind, the kind of thoughts and feelings going on in your mind, which is really helpful. We have to notice that, okay? But that alone doesn't make it spiritual practice, okay? It has to be done within the context of the four truths. It has to be done in the context of wanting to be an ethical person, in the context of wanting to develop compassion. If you're simply observing what's in your mind, then you can sit there and observe Oh, I'm getting angry. Oh, I'm really getting very angry. Oh, I want to retaliate. Oh, I want to go and say something really mean to that person and really hurt their feelings. What shall I say? Oh, I am mindful. This is what I want to say to them. Is that going to help you in your spiritual practice? If you don't have, if you're not doing that kind of meditation, underlaying or from the perspective of or in the context of ethical conduct and or compassion, that kind of mindfulness is you're just being mindful of, you know, how you're going to take your revenge and when you get off your meditation cushion, you're going to go slug somebody or tr trash them and hurt their feelings very badly. Okay. So it, mindfulness in the secular realm started out like that. Now mindfulness, the new inventive mindfulness, is mindfulness with beautiful images displayed, displayed on your computer screen with nice, relaxing music. Yeah. So something, mindfulness relaxes your mind. It helps you fall asleep. So people use the word mindfulness in that context. That I would call that relax relaxation. Or if you call it mindfulness, call it secular mindfulness. But don't think that is the spiritual path of Buddhism. Okay. Also, what made me uh, aware, you know, and why I talk so much about this 
is a friend of mine in Singapore. She teaches mindfulness, the secular kind, and she's very aware because Singapore is very multicultural and multi-religious, as America is, okay? If she taught mindfulness saying this is a Buddhist practice, the Muslims would not come. The Christians would not come. The Taoists would not come, okay? Even though what she's teaching is just secular mindfulness. So she said, it's much better when you're teaching secular mindfulness. Don't tie it to Buddhism because you want to use that to benefit people, as many people as you can. And that kind of mindfulness does have benefit, you know, and it can be the door through which some people come to the Dharma, but it can also be the door through which people make themselves mindfulness teachers and charge for it and earn a lot of money. Okay? So it, yeah. Okay, so just to be aware of it. And, um, you know, and what she said, I really took that to heart when she said, you know, really set Buddhist mindfulness here, secular mindfulness here, make it completely unreligious so that people can come. But still, you can make it unreligious and talk about the importance of being an ethical person. And you can still make it unreligious and talk about compassion. And that mindfulness isn't, you know, because the way it's often taught, it's completely revolves around me. Yeah. So sometimes people wind up psychologizing on the meditation cushion. They're mindful of, you know, I have this thought and that fault. And then since our culture is so much into investigating your childhood, then, you know, they do what they're familiar with and you're doing mindfulness and you're thinking about your childhood and this person said that and that person did this and this and that and I felt this and, you know, you start psychologizing, okay? So mindfulness practice in Buddhism is not psychologizing, yeah? It's examining the object very deeply, yeah? You may see some of your misconceptions regarding that object. And some of your misconceptions may result from childhood things. But then you look at your childhood things from the perspective of this is conditioning instead of the perspective of this is me and I can never be free from this conditioning. It's just conditioning. That's all. It's not who I am. It's not inherently me. I don't have to be trapped by it. Okay. And also the the you know, so it's easy to get get into psychologizing. It's easy also with the beautiful relaxing images and the the nice uh, relaxing music then it, it becomes fantasizing. You know, I'm with Buddha boy lying on the beach and this and that, so relaxing. And it just becomes more self-centeredness, doesn't it? I'm relaxing, dreaming of my perfect samsara. 
my perfect samsara, forget about compassion for other sentient beings. Okay, so, um, yeah. So that kind of mindfulness, the secular, can be helpful for other people when taught from a context of ethical conduct and, and compassion. If it's not taught that way, it may still help some people relax. That's fine. Nothing with helping people relax. Yeah. But don't confuse that with following a spiritual path. And don't confuse that with the Buddhist meaning of mindfulness. Because the people who are gathered here are wanting to learn Buddhist mindfulness. Mindfulness. If you want to learn secular mindfulness, you, you go to your phone and you open the app store. And there are so many people who have mindfulness apps at $99.99 special price for you, you know. And, and you can get that complete with the relaxing music and, and the visual images. Okay. But, you know, I'm not going to give you that. You just get my voice and my face. <laughs> and that may not make you so relaxed. <laughs> Especially when, you know, I talk about what Shanti's Deva is saying in this text, which is meant to push our buttons, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Shanti Deva, the Dharma is meant to push our buttons. If it's not pushing our buttons, then we're not waking up. Okay. So it's, it's, it's pushing our buttons in the sense of it's showing where our, where our blind spots are, where we just don't see the world as it is. In many ways, we don't see that our actions affect other people. We don't see that other people have feelings. We don't see that their feelings are as important as ours. We don't see the ultimate nature. We don't even see, you know, the effects of our actions on our next rebirth. You know, we are so blind because our mind is just trapped in this itty-bitty, like we see the world through this periscope, you know? We're drowning in the sea of ignorance, and there's this little periscope that comes up here, you know, this big. And what what is the periscope constructive of? Me, I, my, and mine. Yeah? Self-grasping ignorance, self-centered mind. And we see the whole world through that. And it never dawns on us that there are other perspectives on the world. Never. It never enters the mind, you know, to think about what samsara is and what it means to be in samsara. We never think about that. Even we've heard lots of Buddhist teachings. How much during the day do we think, I'm in samsara, controlled by ignorance and afflictions and karma? That other person is a samsaric being controlled by ignorance, afflictions, and karma. How much do you think about that during the day? 
Yeah. No, that person, I don't care. They're, you know, they're not controlled by ignorance, affliction, and karma. Well, yes, they are because they're so nasty and mean to me. And they disagree with my political opinions. So they're right and I'm, they're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> yeah. We never think in, in a broad way, you know, us samsara beings, really, it's like we're seeing, there's this whole, everything that's big, and we're listening to that tiny thing, yeah? So that whatever happens to us becomes a national catastrophe. Every small irritation, we, we, our mindfulness goes on our small irritation. Yeah? Over and over and over and over and over. It's not fair. They're always picking on me. Why are they doing this? Didn't their mother teach them better? Why doesn't the spiritual teacher teach them better? I'm going to go to the spiritual teacher and tell them that their other disciples behaving like that. Then they will go and fix that person. Yeah, and I don't have to talk to that person because if I tell them what I don't like about them, then they may not like me. And that's a double national disaster because anybody not liking me, that's really serious business. So even though I don't like them, I'm not going to say anything to them about what their behavior is or I'm not going to tell them how they're behaving you know, how I'm affected by their behavior. But, you know, I'm still going to blame them for acting that way, and I'm going to get somebody else to go and fix them so that they'll still like me, even though I don't like them. Yeah, because everybody has to like me. Even if they don't like me, they have to at least be afraid of me. Because if they're afraid of me, they respect me. That's what some people think. They confuse respect and fear. Fear and respect are two different things, fearing somebody and respecting them. But, you know, if they don't like me, at least they've got to see I'm powerful. And I can squish them. You know? That's how we see the world, isn't it? In terms of friend, enemy, and stranger. In terms of me, I, my, and mine. And no wonder we're unhappy. Hmm? Verse 4. Tigers, lions, elephants, bears, snakes, and all forms <coughs> of enemies. Okay like that wild cat in the forest, the bear in the forest, the garter snake that comes out in the summer. Okay. Oh, so it isn't tigers, lions, elephants, bears, snakes, and all forms of enemies, the guardians of the hell worlds, evil spirits, and cannibals will all be bound by binding my mind alone and will all be subdued by subduing my mind alone. Why? How? Okay. Why 
do we face external dangers? Yeah. Because of the situations we put ourselves in. How do we put ourselves in situations? Some are through choices we make in this life. But a lot of our the situations we're in depends on choices we made in previous lives. Okay? Choices to harm people. Choices to enact my vengeance. Okay? So when we did that in previous lives, then we're faced with physical things here. Now, people may not get so excited, you know, lions and tigers, elephants and bears, ho-ho, okay? We're more afraid of terrorists, okay? Um, people walking around with AK, AK, what? 47, AK-47s and AR-15s. Okay, we're more afraid of those people. Or maybe you're afraid of bikers. Or maybe you're afraid of Republicans. Or maybe you're afraid of Democrats. I mean, the Democrats are destroying the country. Yeah, they're all radical leftist socialists. I'm not sure what that means. And if they're not destroying the country, the Republicans are because... They all follow QAnon, and their leader lies with everything he says when he opens his mouth. So, you know, I'm afraid of all those other people. Democrats, Republicans, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I should move to another country where they don't have Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, what do they have in Germany? Christian socialists. Oh, God, do I have to be a cream party? Oh? Cream party. What? Green party. Oh, green party. That sounds good. Yeah, it's a big one in Germany. That sounds good. Okay. Then we'll all really be like Tara. <laughs> okay, quick way to Tara Hood. Go to Germany and join the green party. Yeah, we have one. We didn't hear much about it. But in America, I mean, we have lots of things to be afraid of. You know, who worries about evil spirits and cannibals here? You know, when you have the Proud Boys, you know. But then other people look at the Proud Boys and say, the Proud Boys are going to defend me. Yeah, I like the Proud Boys. I like them around, you know. They'll defend me. Complicated world. Okay, but... What Shanti Deva is saying, all these things, all these different fears, get subdued by subduing the mind. Okay? Why? It operates in two ways. First of all, if we subdue our mind, then in this very life, we are not so fearful, which means we treat people in a more, in a kinder way. Okay, We're, our minds are not ruminating on fear all the time. There's space in our mind to think about kindness for others. When we treat others with kindness, they usually reciprocate. Okay, When we treat others poorly, they usually reciprocate that too. It's kind of what our parents told us when we were little. You know, be nice to your brothers and sisters. Be nice to the kids across the street. 
Yeah. Of course, some parents say somebody slugged you on the par on the playground, you go slug them back. That's going to create another kind of conditioning. Okay. But you know, in this very life, if we practice kindness, if we practice patience and fortitude, okay, then all a lot of the fears are going to go away. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. Um, you know, because there's certain, or there's probably certain people who may look a certain way that you get afraid of. And then just think of, well, what would happen if I saw that, that person that looked that way? And I thought, they're a human being who just wants to be happy and not suffer. And I'm going to go talk to them and see what their life is like instead of imputing a personality on somebody based on how they look, I'm going to go talk to them and just see what their life is like. Yeah? And then you overcome your fear and you do that. That's going to have a totally different result than just like, yeah, there's somebody who looks like this. You know? I better run away or I better attack back before they do. Okay, no, we go and we talk to them. They're human beings. They want to be happy just like us. The other way that that taming the mind, subduing the mind, conquers all these other things is by creating good karma. Okay, when we subdue our mind, then we cease to create non-virtue and we put our energy into creating virtue. When we cease creating non-virtue, then we're not creating the causes to be born where there's lions and tigers and elephants and bears and snakes and all forms of enemies, the guardians of the hell realms, the evil spirits and cannibals, let alone proud boys and uh, Republicans and Democrats and QAnon and, you know, anything else your little heart desires to fear. Okay, you won't be born around all that. Or even you're born around that, it doesn't, it, you know, you don't react with fear. So by taming the mind, okay, the two ways it works is this lifetime, we don't generate so many afflictions that cause us suffering right here and now. And we also stop creating the afflictions that lead to non-virtuous actions of body, speech, and mind that will lead us to suffering in the future and being born in suffering situations in the future. And instead, we'll create virtuous actions that will lead to good rebirths. Okay? I don't think in Sukhavati they have, you know, evil spirits and cannibals. Yeah? And they probably don't have Republicans and Democrats either because nobody elected Amitabha. You don't have elections. Everybody just naturally follows Amitabha. And you don't have patriarchy and you don't have feminazi Nazis. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, a lot better, isn't it? And so you don't, your mind isn't reacting towards all of this. Okay. And you don't have incels. 
And what else don't you have? Huh? Antifa. Yeah, and three percenters. And, and oath keepers. Okay. And all of the other ones in Germany, you call them by different names. Neo-Nazis. Yeah. Well, we call them neo-Nazis here too. Okay. Yeah. In Korea, what do you call them? What? Yeah. Yeah. So the. Yeah, you're not sure. Okay. Huh? Skinheads? In Germany. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Your parents will be disappointed. You've forgotten Korean culture. <laughs> Korea is not so extreme. You put all the extremists in North Korea. <laughs> yeah. You're only afraid of the North Koreans. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Vietnam, what are you afraid of? The Americans. Yeah. <laughs> Huh? So, yeah. So, Singapore? Yeah. Okay. Usual story. Yeah. Well, it depends who you are in Singapore. Yeah. If you're a Muslim or a Buddhist, you're afraid of the Christians. If you're a Christian, you're afraid of the Muslims and Buddhists and want to convert them. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, you know, the, it's our mind that creates this whole scene, you know. What makes somebody any of, a member of any of those groups? It's the mind. And what makes us react to certain groups in a certain way? It's our mind. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this, um, you know, when, uh, when we have a war, Okay, so when you have a war, you have other people who you don't know, but they're on your side. Yeah, so you don't know them. You may be in the same platoon or whatever, and you get to know them, but, you know, at the beginning you don't. But those people you protect, but you, there's no, there are people you don't know. The other side are also people you don't know, but those people you try and kill or push back or harm in some way. And both sides are exactly the same. You don't know the individual people on them. So without even knowing the person, you decide that they're a friend or they're an enemy, whether you're going to protect their life or deliberately kill them. Is that stupidity or is that stupidity? Yeah. I mean, to me, that's like so stupid. I was somebody who grew up as a child who I was really wondering if adults, how much intelligence they had, you know? Yeah, because I grew up in the middle of the Vietnam War, and then, you know, this is what was going on, you know? And the same with racism and the riots, you know, that, that were going on in the country. These people look like this, so they're on our side. These people look like that, they're on the other side. Stupid. Yeah. 
Okay. Isn't it? It's totally stupid. Why do we, you know, it's our mind. And here's where, I mean, what Shantidev is saying, you really apply it to your life and you apply it to society around you and you really see that what Shantidev is saying is true. The whole thing is created by the mind. We feel like we're born into an external situation. Yeah. And that situation is inherently friendly or fearful. But it's created by the mind. The causes, the root causes of the whole thing are our minds. So that's why he's saying, you know, simply by fastening this mind, they all become controlled. Simply by subduing the mind, they all become subdued. Okay, so questions and comments first. Do we have to reach the path of seeing to be reborn in Sukhavati? No. This is one of Amitabha's um, uh, kindnesses, is you can be born in his pure land without having the realization of emptiness. It's helpful to, if not have the, having the realization of emptiness, at least having some background in it. Um, but it's not necessary. Sometimes I feel like if I'm not like afraid, feeling fear about some of the Buddhist teachings, I'm not really getting it. It's not having an emotional impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I think about the lower realms, I think it's useful to actually have real emotional fear. Be yeah. And it, I've noticed it helps me. No, you don't want to have that kind of emotional fear. Of, oh, I'm terrified of going to the lower realms. And then, because you, then you're going to go right back into a Christian thing of God sending me to the lower realms because I'm not pleasing God and I'm a sinful person. You don't want to go into any of those thoughts or into this trembling feeling, okay? What you want to be aware of is how cause and effect functions, okay? So if I create these kind of causes, this is the kind of effect that's gonna come. If I don't want this effect, then I need to be attentive and not create those causes. That intellectual approach, it doesn't really get deep enough. You know, I feel mm -hmm. like I need some kind of power behind <laughs> these uh -huh. to, well, to that, steer my what, mind. Then you imagine really being born in one of those realms, okay? But when you imagine it, you know, because it's, we, we feel like, I remember when I first started learning, I was trying so hard to get myself terrified in my meditation, like, and I felt like, you know, I'm not meditating right because I'm coming out and, you know, there's sunshine outside. I should come out and I should be like this all day long. Just I'm afraid of going to the lower realms. This is terrible. I should go. And I, you know, I did. I forgot to bless my food. This is a disaster. I'm going to the lower realms. And then, oh, my guru's going to, I'm supposed to please my guru. How do I please my guru? Am I supposed to do this tap dance or that ballet dance? I don't know what to do. And, you know, that state of mind, useless. Okay. But... You can look, you can imagine what those realms are like and have, and without having the emotional 
panic, but really looking and saying, I don't want to be born there. Yeah. Can you look at some people's, some people on this planet and say, boy, you know, they have a really hard life. I, I wouldn't want to be born in their situation. Are you trembly and shaking and panicky and emotional when you say that? Like fear and trembling inside? To that extent, but like to be really affected, to be really moved deeply. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You want to be moved deeply, but not, you know, so emotional. Yeah, being, okay, there's different meanings of being emotional, okay? And there's there's useful emotions on the path, and there's unuseful emotions on the path, okay? The fear that makes you like this is unuseful emotion. The emotion that makes you really moved at how another person's life is and saying, wow, I don't want to be born like that, and there's a possibility that I am born like that. That is a good kind of motivation, a good kind of emotion, because that's going to make you more attentive and more careful. Okay? So different kinds of emotion. So you mentioned that mindfulness is tying your mind to a virtuous object, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought mindfulness was an um, object as ascertaining mental factor and it's not virtuous or non-virtuous or are you, is this something different? Okay. When you're doing, um, uh, shine meditation, uh, serenity meditation, your object can be neutral or it can be virtuous. Okay. The reason they often, uh, uh, encourage us to use the Buddha as the object of meditation because it has many good effects because that's a virtuous object. If you're meditating on your breath, for some people is more suitable, but that is not, that's a neutral object. Okay, anything else? 